0: Occupy a Job on Wall Street is an autobiographical novel about New York City in the aughts, centering around a protagonist mentored by sociopaths. Episode 74, Surviving the Bear With all the recent disruptions to life, I've run a little behind on the podcast. It's unclear how much the cadence of episodes matters at this point, but each one of these is a proof of concept, so I don't intend to pause until we're well beyond hundred. And I have the material to work with, piles and piles of it, stories upon stories that people have shared with me, all of which can be drawn together with my own recollection and notes to detail what life was like back then. But I've come to understand that there's a process and discipline that's needed to bring all of that together. With the markets moving the way they have been, well, that's been missing lately. So think of the following as a guest post, material from elsewhere that has been lifted and applied with permission here. Listen up. You might learn something. I'm in my 40s and I've worked on Wall Street since the beginning of the century. I've seen market crashes and euphoria, relentless optimism that has driven previously unimaginable wealth and benefits to the human race, as well as bolts from the blue that have crashed the economy while at the same time changing how the world appears to us. There are two things I know. Firstly, there's a nonlinear return on overtime. Get into work 10% earlier than people, and you'll make 20% more money than them. Work 20% harder, and you'll make 40% more money. Secondly, sometimes if you're dealt a good hand, just not screwing it up is a talent. This is how I know these things. Everyone says this, but I grew up in the kind of place that just doesn't exist anymore. Lily White, even more homogeneous than you can imagine. Like America in the 1950s, the way people like to pretend it was. not the way it really was. Everyone in my town went to church on Sundays. My mother was indulgent enough to allow us to bring a toy to while away the time in the pews while we waited for communion. I remember the other kids in the congregation casting jealous looks at my G.I. Joe ninja, acquirable only because our father was the town doctor and family in California had sent us a Sears catalog. On my first day at school, my parents discovered I'd walk there myself with the kid next door who dreamed of becoming an engineer to escape the seemingly endless dreariness. We collected milk from an actual milkman. I recall this detail because my older brother once smashed all the empty bottles in the neighborhood and stole the coins. He could have just turned the bottles upside down, but just getting the money wasn't the point of daily life back then. On school holidays, we'd go out on a boat my father built himself. He'd use a compass and a pencil on an old map to guide us to places almost untouched by humanity. We'd be away for two or three weeks at a time with only a single shop, really a storehouse, for sustenance. If I dig deep down within my memory, I remember miserable, sometimes terrifying experiences when the weather turned ugly. But mostly I dream of building fires and hunting my siblings with rocks amongst the forests and beaches. Even though the nearby shop only sold books and locally sourced wooden toys, I don't want to make out that my early years were completely Antipodean. We had a robust public school system, which ruthlessly tested and pushed us into different career paths, and I was fortunate enough to be educated beyond my intelligence. My neighborhood friend escaped town as an engineer on a boat, according to his plan, while I took up a surfboard in Indonesia and California. I caught a bus around Europe and my first subway trip in London. The travel bug still had me at the turn of the century. I was passing through New York on my way back to California to crash on my brother's couch when the two of us had a brief argument and I was sort of stranded on the East Coast. The only person I knew was an evangelical Christian living in New Jersey. True to their faith, his family took me in and treated me like a prodigal son. My friend was a real life firefighter in New York, so I would spend my time in New Jersey faxing resumes and then catch a lift with him into the city. While he fought the good fight, I hit the pavement and walked into every recruiting firm I could find. Eventually, I found a part-time job. All my earlier preparation began to pay off, and I was soon offered a better job, and then a better job after that. In March of 2000, I found myself working for a hedge fund when the stock market crashed. It was chaos, people shouting and running around everywhere. I thought to myself, oh my god, what am I going to do now? A senior trader told me I had nothing to worry about. That all I did was pick up paper tickets and didn't make enough money to be fired. He was right. And while everyone lost their heads around me, I stayed on. With everyone else gone, my new job at the hedge fund was just to answer the phone and relay information from a Bloomberg screen. When the founder called, I would look at some numbers and read off the change on the day to him. That was it. Because I got into work before anyone else, the founder got used to me being there, and this provided a certain amount of job security. I started to wonder how I could put my own stamp on things, so I wrote down the market data the founder asked of me each morning and began emailing it out to the rest of the firm. Now everyone at the fund had the same information at around the same time, and the investment process there became more efficient. As new people were hired at the firm, I would approach them and ask if they wanted to be on the same email I sent to the founder at 6 a.m. They'd say yes, of course, and after a week or so, I'd solicit their feedback on what else I could include in this morning message. An energy portfolio manager, for instance, might ask me to quote the price of natural gas and any important news coming out of OPEC. So the morning note grew, and my knowledge of the markets grew with it. Over time, the firm prospered, and I did too. In March of 2003, we invaded Iraq, a war I vociferously disapproved of, although admittedly for all the wrong reasons. I'd put a lot of energy into opposing that war, protesting in the streets, and sometimes even getting in fistfights with supporters. I shake my head now at how I could be so insufferably young and sure of myself. However, I redirected most of that energy into supporting injured veterans when they returned from overseas. The first fundraiser I held raised $200 for a family in Kansas to pave the front steps for their father's wheelchair when he came home from Walter Reed Hospital. I kept at the fundraising, and with help over the years we've raised millions for our military families, but I'm proudest of that first $200. Some years ago, my career started to plateau, and I could see the writing on the wall that I was likely to be unceremoniously ejected from the highest echelons of Wall Street. I approached a mentor of mine to go out drinking, a singular talent of mine growing up, and told him I thought I was likely to lose my job. He said he thought I was going to lose my job, too, and gave me three pieces of advice that served me well through that searing experience. First, when you discover someone means you harm, don't tell them or anyone else what you are thinking. Secondly, start looking at alternative routes. And lastly, he told me to write everything down, carefully and completely, no matter how insignificant. If you write everything down and 95% of it is garbage, you still have the remaining 5% that you didn't own earlier. Put that in a new notebook. Who knows what might come of those thoughts if you capture them. After my mentor left me at the bar, I went home and wrote down everything I could remember about working for one of the most notorious hedge funds on the planet. I started preparing for a new phase in my career and visited every recruiter in New York, a strange echo of my first days in the city. And I didn't tell anyone what I was thinking, so it took the powers that be at my company a good year or so to push me out of there. I used that year wisely by imagining who I could be and then aiming single-mindedly at that. And eventually, I found another job, one better suited to my most important role now, a father to my children. No longer a Wall Street master of the universe, I can't hold 2,000-person fundraisers in New York anymore, but I spend my free time mentoring military veterans and helping them transition from the public to the private sector. It somehow seems more rewarding. I don't miss the social aspect of those giant charity events or the undeniable prestige of my previous role. To some extent, once you have done something, it's done. Between the fundraisers, working on Wall Street, the ability and willingness to travel, I've seen some strange things, and have met even stranger people. So a while ago I began reviewing all the notes I made over the years and bringing them together into a satirical novel. I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can at this one thing and see what happens. Becoming a writer has been an incredibly rewarding experience, and it's the first thing I think about in the morning and the last thing I think about at night. Outside of my daughter, of course. Oh, and the boy. Episode 75 of Occupy a Job on Wall Street will be out soon. And think about this. The best way to understand your life may well be as a story. If you're not the hero of your own story, then you're going to be a bit character in someone else's. This will be a role that's assigned to you and probably not one that you would pick. Especially for the younger people that may be listening to this. You should figure out what your story is, because it might be a tragedy. And if it is, you might want to rethink it.